Hey, everybody, and welcome to Enjoy the View. I'm Bean, and today on our panel, we have <laughs> Tessa. Hello. Ari. Hello. And guest panelist Amel Hussein. Hello. I, I'm happy to be referred to as Bean as well. <laughs> My name is Amel, formerly known as Bean. You're going to have to be other Bean then. Bean too. <laughs> oh, Bean too. Bean too works. You know, actually, I could be Bean without the vowels, you know, be all like cool web 3.0. Like, no, no vowel. Yeah, Benio. <laughs> <laughs> no vowel name. Just infer the vowels. All right, I'm sorry. Hello. <laughs> Hi, everybody. It's been a long and, week. <laughs> it has. And our special guest for this episode is David Ash. David, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Thanks for having me. I'm a software developer for a big bank. My job title is Man About Town. <laughs> yeah. Man About Town. Sometimes wrangling, sometimes managing, sometimes both, right? <laughs> Whatever they need. Yeah. And so speaking of, today our topic is about the transition between individual contributor, or a lot of us will be referring to it as IC going forward, versus being in a manager role. So, I mean, I guess to kick it off, David, what are your thoughts as far as what it's like to transition from IC to a manager role? I have so many. <laughs> I'm really excited to do this because then I can come back and look at this in like a year and think, what an idiot. Because I'm in the transition now, right? So I'm sure in just a few months, I'll learn some big lesson about something I'm doing quite wrong. And it'll be fun to see which of the things I've intuited and which I'm going to have to bump my head against the wall to learn. Probably the biggest one, though, is... Obviously, when you're an IC, you get things done by getting your hands on the keyboard and making it happen most of the time. And not being an IC, you need to trust other people to get work done. And so there's a psychological component there to trust other people to know when you can count on others to get it done. But also, how do you delegate work to other people? How many people should be on this task? When other people are making decisions about how it should go, should I push back or go along with it? politics. That part two really comes up. I think one of the great things about being an IC is you can dodge a lot of politics. Yeah. So in your experience, Amel, what has that been like? Do you find that your experience has been similar or how does it compare? Yeah, I, I would say very similar to what David just said. It's a huge shift. I mean, I remember when I first made a transition from being an IC to a manager, I immediately realized like my time was not my own. So that's like the first big realization that you set out your day thinking like, okay, I'm going to accomplish one, two, three, four, five. And then you accomplish one, two, half of three, if you're lucky. And so really, there's a lot of context switching and a lot more enabling other people to do work, less so mm -hmm. doing actual work yourself. And, and it was a very jarring transition for me because it's really hard to, how do you measure success? You know, how do you know you're getting stuff done? Right. And for me, like a big thing was like, okay, my team is unblocked. People are productive. Everyone knows what they're doing. Great. I've done my job. Right. But it's not always as easy as that. And so I think for me, that was the biggest challenge. Like when I'm an IC, I worked on these pull requests. I worked on this big feature. I helped do this one thing. And I think it's not as easy to quantify the value that you deliver as a manager. Like it's much more ephemeral and a good manager is invisible in many ways. So and terrible managers can be very visible. Yeah. And terrible managers are way too visible, way too micromanagey. And for me, like I really stopped using the word, I'm your manager. And I use the words like, I'm here to support you, right? Because really you're there to support your team and you're there to serve them. 
not the other way around, at least as a mentality that I took. I don't know if that was the case for you, David, but I feel very much like I'm a customer service person for my team. Yeah, I would strongly agree with that. Why doesn't everyone just think of it that way? Yeah, good man. (laughs) There's way more bad managers than good ones too. That's the other thing. Like there's so few good examples of managers. So many horrible managers, which is why we need more good people to be managers. And a lot of the horrible managers that I've seen are the ones that are like, the best individual contributor gets promoted to be a manager. That's a horrible mm-hmm. idea. You know, they should shift into management, right? Because it's not necessarily even a promotion sometimes. Like they should shift into management because they are good at that and they enjoy doing that. But don't take somebody who's good at code and immediately think like, okay, they're going to be a great manager. It's like one of the biggest mistakes that companies make. We'll take the best coder and have them lead the team on all aspects. You know, it's like a really sad situation because people just get frustrated and they're not happy at their job anymore. And they that's the start of the bad manager, right? Yeah, it's funny because traditionally, as you mentioned, like there was nowhere to go beyond senior engineer for most companies. So naturally, the next place was team lead. And as we've talked about, individual contributors versus manager are very basically different skill sets as far as what your priorities are and what you're focusing on. And so what I've seen at some of the newer companies like GitLab is they have staff positions. So instead of like a senior front end engineer, you're now a staff front end engineer. So you're still in a promoted like elevated position from helping to lead more architectural decisions and having that still an IC focus with some leadership capacity, but not from a you have four people under you and now you have to manage their performance reviews and yada, yada. Like I'm liking the company's like approach to sort of letting people choose, am I more of a people manager or am I more of an individual contributor when it comes to like next steps in my career? What are your thoughts on this, Tessa? It kind of reminds me of the primary problem that I've observed with CSS, where so many people's first introduction is from somebody else and like chicken and egg, chicken and egg, hate CSS, and they don't really know how to use it. And then (laughs) that just keeps on recreating the issue over and over again. And I feel like management is a lot like that. You just kind of get thrust into the situation where you have to do something and like all the people around you aren't necessarily adept at it or particularly pleased to be there either. And so it just keeps on perpetuating. And to the note that ML made about bad managers being very visible, I feel like it also seems to be a pretty common experience that the visibility trickles down. So like the higher ups don't know, but like the lower downs in the job hierarchy definitely knows. I don't know if maybe that experience is different for other ICs like Ari. I also think that a bad manager can have very low visibility as well. Because, you know, the job of the manager is to enable the team. But if the manager is not listening to problems that the team is having, they're not there to address them. So cuts both ways, in my opinion. (laughs) Cuts both ways. You have a really pretty voice. Thank you. I'm forgetting the rest of the lyrics, but la, 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 la. It cuts both ways. Sorry. Are you telling me we have two-way binding? Oh, This is a view podcast. I see we have a a pun master here. Tessa, well, I raise you one pun and no, I'm not going (laughs) to. I'm sorry. We're not going to have a pun off. But yeah, I mean, honestly, Ben, I'm so glad that you brought up the whole, I would say, track the engineering track situation that we have because it's a situation and it's a hot situation because most companies don't actually know what to do with their senior engineers. And so what you have is this like weird, large band of, I've been at the company for five years and I'm kicking 
and I just got promoted to senior engineer and I've been at the mm -hmm. company for 15 years and hey, I'm still senior engineer, right? Like, how is that fair? It is not an adequate measure of that person's competence or capability or whatever, and or like the amount of influence and scope and how big that sphere of influence should be for that person. And so for me, like having those parallel tracks for managers and engineers, right, where you have staff, senior staff, principal, senior principal, architect, senior architect, right, your sphere of influence should grow, right, where you're able to be a technical lead that goes from managing one team's backlog and technical delivery to a series of teams' backlogs and technical delivery and roadmaps, right? And so companies that have leadership tracks for engineers are, for me, ones that recognize the need for mentorship and growth beyond just senior software engineer, right? And so I can tell you, I shifted back from being an engineering manager to a principal engineer. And there's a whole backstory behind that. Maybe we'll get into it later. <laughs> but like, I'm telling you, like, I'm not interested in working at a company that doesn't have those roles, right? Because I am not a senior software engineer anymore, right? And so I'm never going to work at a company that doesn't have senior staff or principal. It's just not happening because that's just not a title that really reflects the value that I bring to an engineering organization. So promotions shouldn't necessarily just equal management, right? Like management at some point becomes a parallel track. I've worked places where principal engineer and engineering manager were essentially at the same level, right? In terms of pay and or sphere of influence or whatever, they just had different responsibilities. Yeah, I don't know if y'all feel this way when you think about like promotions and raises in the tech industry, but sometimes I almost feel like it's like watching a game of Hungry Hungry Hippos. And it's also kind of perfect that there's four hippos, I guess, for like Thing, but they're just like ping-ponging around between the different companies to keep on growing their career rather than nurturing their career at one company. I'd like to go back a bit to this topic of avoiding politics and then as a manager getting thrown into the politics. At least in my experience, it's been kind of difficult to identify what's more different about the politics of a manager because I feel like in tech, there's so much discourse around just focus on the code. And so when I hear politics, I almost hear like having to talk to other people at the company or see people. And so I'm curious what politics means as a manager and also why people choose to go from being an IC to being a manager or, you know, vice versa. I will talk now. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> yeah, well, for me... Being an IC has always been, it's funny you brought up Hungry Hungry Hippos, because as soon as you said that, I was like, oh, that's what development is like for me. Will this work? Will this work? Maybe this will work. <laughs> like a frenzy of Very trying true. things, particularly as I was newer. But like for me, being an IC has always been like, okay, so I got that feature done. That's great. Oh, you know, we built this. This product does something it didn't do before. That's really exciting. But also the way we do software around me. Not any of my jobs. This is no particular job. This kind of sucks. Like, this is chaotic. We could automate a lot more and feel this need. Like, I need to go above and beyond to make this product not just better from a features the user sees level, but from how easy it is to maintain it and change it and make it better level. Right? So even if you made me an IC and, I don't know, I got convicted on some trumped up hacking charges and they're like, you can never be a manager in a tech organization. No, they would just let me work in tech. But if like some court said you could never be a manager, like I would still be thinking from a team level, like, how can we make this easier? Why are our releases so bad? I had to stay up till 11 at night. I'm thinking of my startup time, right? I had to stay up till 11 at night dealing with production bug. How do I make sure that never happens again? I think that's why manager makes a lot of sense for me is because I can't just think of things, maybe because I'm mentally off, 
like I can't just focus on the here and now and how to get this part done. It's like, how do I get this better? How do I get more control over this other thing? Yeah, speaking to my own experience, similar to Mel, I at one point went from an IC to a team lead. And so at the time, it was really for me, it was about finding ways to help sort of like there's a metaphor of being the tide that lifts other ships. And so I like the idea of being able to take the time to learn about what team members wanted to work on and try to assign work or just sort of push them forward on their career trajectory. But one of the things I know I found challenging as a manager or well, a team lead, so it's like semi-manager, but nonetheless, depending on the organization you're in, you're going to have different abilities to affect the change you want to affect. And ultimately, you might just basically be the person communicating upper management decision rather than actually affecting any change. And that's what I think for me personally, that's what ultimately led me to stop being a manager just because I realized for the most part, I wasn't able to do the things I thought were critical to my team's success and their happiness. So that was one of the challenges I know that I had to face. I just wanted to say if Chris were here, he would say it's that the tide raises all boats, Ben, not ships. Okay, got it. Uh, <laughs> That's true. Chris would say that. <laughs> Pun master, pedantic master, got it. Check, check. You gotta be pedantic <laughs> to succeed in programming, right? Well, actually. No, yeah, well, actually. <laughs> I'm hoping some of our listeners are a little bit newer to tech, so they may not be as familiar with some of the distinctions we're making. So what is the difference between an engineering manager and a tech lead, for example? Sure. Yeah, Anyone that's a question. For that? <laughs> I, I would say David, since we've been interrupting David. So David, you go. <laughs> I'm happy to take this as well. There's certainly no stone tablets you can pull down from the mountain of Facebook to define these things or Google or whoever the canonical source of all tech goodness should be. So it's kind of company by company. But I guess an engineering manager is more that person wouldn't code, right? I think at most organizations, that's a pretty safe bet. An engineering manager wouldn't be coding. A tech lead might code. Maybe not, it depends on the company. But certainly a tech lead is much more likely to actually have their hands on a keyboard and write some code. A tech lead is much more likely to be looking at pull requests. An engineering manager might look at very few. They might look at some. An engineering manager is more likely to be architecting than a tech lead. Although I sure would like to architect as a tech lead. From what I've heard, it sounds like at a lot of places, tech lead is basically you're still a developer, but also at the same time, you have some duties of a manager and some duties of a product manager without any kind of significant raise or other official title change or whatever. So I'm curious if that's been people's experiences or what thoughts are there. Tech is all about getting not paid for doing work, right? (laughs) I guess so. My experience is a little weird in that my only experience so far is at a startup and startup land is a very different game in terms of management. Like, for example, we don't have anyone really in management that doesn't still do technical work, like including the CTO. The CTO still codes full time. And I have to say, splitting your attention, I'm not sure is the most efficient way to manage, but so I guess, has anyone else had that experience or is it just me? (laughs) We have that at my company too. The tech leads, I think it probably also depends on personality. But for example, one of my managers, it seems like they're trying to find ways to incorporate tech doing coding into their management time to aid their proficiency as a manager while the other manager seems like they're still learning to let go of the coding and transition into the non-coding parts of management. 
And then other places I've worked, there have been managers who are coding way more than they should be just because it's their baby. Referring back to comfort, right? That's the thing that actually happened to me when I was a new manager. My manager was like, listen, I intentionally want you to not code at work for a little bit because you are going to default to your natural comfort zones. So you need to train yourself that you need to trust other people to do their job and you need to enable your team. And it's also like when you're a new manager, like it's not your job to be the smartest engineer on the team anymore. And from someone like me who was coming into a manager role from a tech lead position, it was my job to be the smartest on the team and be super involved in the micro and macro decisions, uh, you know, technically and So it's a big, big transition to like say, okay, it's your job to enable people to work on career coaching, to work on roadmaps, to work with stakeholders, to work with product, you know, to make sure people are getting the mentoring that they need. And of course, to jump in with your team. And so it depends on the company. Like I worked at NPM as an engineering manager. NPM was very hands-on engineering manager. So I would code sometimes, but it was with my team to unblock them. It wasn't as part of the feature delivery cycle, right? If you look at a RACI matrix, if y'all are familiar, we should link that in the show notes. So it's like a responsibility, accountability, consulted, informed matrix. So when you're starting a new project, depending on how your company works, you may be creating a RACI matrix. And so I was accountable for the work, but not responsible, right? In the sense that my team is delivering work and I am eventually the accountable buck stops your person for the output of that work, for the delivery of that work, for when that work is done and how that work is done. But I'm not responsible for getting that work done in the micro sense, right? I'm responsible for setting up the foundation and giving my team the resources and whatnot to get that work done, but not actually doing the work. Does that make sense? It's like, it's very nuanced. But I would say that that's very much like the core of your job as an engineering manager. It's very much this Venn diagram of how and what and who. How is tech lead? What is product? And who is engineering manager? And there's some overlap in all of those three areas, like between how and what and who. But the engineering manager is primarily responsible for who if that makes sense. Who with some of how, some of what, but mostly who. That should be the episode title. (laughs) It can be. I think an earlier point that I wanted to make around middle management pains, which is something that Tessa brought up, being a middle manager sucks, y'all. It is a (laughs) painful job. And it is enormously (laughs) more painful when you work for an organization that has a lot of chaos and churn. And when you work for an organization where you have to deliver news to your team, where you don't agree with the news you are delivering, but guess what? It is your job to Mm -hmm. deliver it. It is your job to not only deliver it, but to get your team to align to this news. And for me, that was the ultimate like moral ethical crux that I had as an engineering manager. Mm -hmm. And I worked at NPM as an engineering manager during Mm -hmm. a time where we were going through an acquisition with Microsoft GitHub and everything was on fire. And it was like the craziest time to be at NPM. And it is something that I will write a book about in the future. And it is something that y'all may be hearing more from me in the future on. But I can tell you that it was extremely difficult to deliver news to my team where I didn't agree with like that I was having to have to tell them. And so as a middle manager, you're in this really tough spot where you're at times having to manage up and laterally and down. But at the same time, like you are this connection point between upper management and your direct reports. And depending on how upper management has their stuff together or not, like your job is just exponentially harder. 
And for me, like what was such a shocking realization when I became a manager was when things were good on my team, they were freaking amazing. Okay. But when things were not good, you feel that same, it's like 5X, right? So it's like, let's say I have five people on my team. When things are not good, you feel that like five, six X because it's not just you anymore. You know, you're taking in how everybody's feeling. And so I think that the new emotional burden of being a first time manager and like, how do you make space for that new emotional baggage that you're now responsible for? Like, that was such a hard challenge for me. I don't think I ever got over how difficult it was emotionally to be responsible for a team through good and bad. Because good is easy. Good is great. But when things are not going great, or when the company's having issues, and there's people's livelihoods that you're literally have in your hands in some ways, right? In particular, going through a startup and acquisition, right? Where either you cannot legally share what you know, or you don't have answers for like, what's going to happen with your job. That's tough. It's like, I wouldn't wish that on my greatest enemy. I'll tell you that. I am all your book. Yeah. Can it be titled Hungry, Hungry Hippos? Yeah. I mean, I think Hungry, Hungry Hippos is such a powerful analogy on so many levels, Tessa. Like that works so well. So yeah, I think that'll be the subtitle. I'm actually working on, they all know, like I'm working on a a website redesign and I'm starting a blog and my blog is going to have a section for alt titles, meaning that here are all the titles that I wanted to also use, but I had to pick one. And so maybe I'll have an alt title section for the book and be like, here are all the titles that didn't make the cut. (laughs) (laughs) That's my chance to warn her that as Ben knows, I have a very high commission fee on all my ideas. Uh, oh, are you? I thought I heard a ukulele. I'm hearing things it. in my old age. <laughs> she brought up a really good point, though. When you're a manager and no longer an IC, you have to own things that aren't yours anymore. When you're an oh. IC, you get to own the output, right? And you get to be responsible for only things you did. But then when you're a manager, you're responsible for things other people did under you and above you. And that's why you have to use profanity sometimes. Yeah, it kind of sounds like both sides are always looking at the other side, like they get to own more of their work than I do. And Amel's points kind of reminded me of my understanding of the original definition for emotional labor, where like, regardless Mm. of how you feel, you have to present kind of a different face to the world and upkeep this other secondary emotional appearance. But bringing it back to Ari's question... I mean, in the book, Manager's Path, they do recommend that engineering managers regularly make a practice of coding from time to time to like increase empathy and help their developers get unblocked and stuff like that. But I imagine that in a lot of startups, it's a different experience because they're usually more strapped for resources. And for people like Ben and David, who've had experiences in both larger companies and startups, I'm curious what your thoughts are there. Like on how much should a manager code? Is that the question? Like what's the right amount? Yeah. Or does the context change the definition of you coding as a manager? Yeah. I mean, I would think, does anyone know anything about holacracy? Because I've heard about it. I don't know a lot about it. I'm very fascinated by the idea of flattening organizations, having fewer levels of hierarchy. I read this book by Stanley McChrystal, Team of Teams. It was really interesting how they turned the U.S. Army, which is super hierarchical, into a graph with edges talking to each other and removing connection with upper command, but that's a tangent. When you have less layers of management, there's much less of a feedback loop. And when you have fewer people who can write code, and there's such a huge demand for code, then yeah, I mean, a startup, it's almost inevitable that 
people will be writing more code, I would think. Sorry, I'm not sure I heard you correctly. Did you say a holacracy, like holographic, like that hollow nails YouTube person? <laughs> hello, <laughs> like, me? like the whole, was it Zappos who does it? Holacracy? It's like whole, but not with a W. There's holacracy.org, H-O-L-A, like hola, H-O-L-A-C-R-A-C-Y.org. You can check it out. It's a decentralized management idea. It's been famously tried in some places and hasn't necessarily worked out as well as some would think. Oh, is that the turn the ship around thing? <laughs> oh, that book that was talked about at GDGCT? Turn the ship around. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe. Oh my God. That's kind of the worst idea though. They tried that at NPM and it kind of led to a disaster. This is before I joined, but basically the disaster was like, let's not manage people, let everybody do their own thing. And then you have these silos and you have people kind of flailing and it doesn't really work. Right. People need support. People need a daily manager. They need a champion. They need a sponsor. They need all those things, you know? I don't know. It's not really going to work in a corporate mm -hmm. setting anyway, right? This isn't like a farm share <laughs> co-op. Yeah. I think naturally people will emerge as manager types, only right. there's not the clear lines that they're a manager. So then it just turns into abuse of power <laughs> because mm -hmm. no one is actually being held accountable for the power. So, yeah, mm -hmm. I don't think flat orgs really work. Like, I just don't see how that's possible because humans are flawed. Mm. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, same Ari, we're on the same page. And I'm not saying that there needs to either also be a very strict hierarchy in the sense that I think while I do believe in having levels throughout an org, because I think it helps promote accountability and responsibility and whatnot, there needs to be connections, right? So for example, as an individual contributor, it's really great to have meetings every once in a while with mm -hmm. a skip level, right? So skip level meaning like somebody that's not your boss, right? That way you like have a way boss, of voice. Right? Yeah, your boss's boss or your boss's boss's sibling or whatever, like whatever, you know, somewhere in the org chart, your <laughs> cousins but they're not your immediate ones. And so the point is that skip levels give you a way to voice your concerns and your feedback and get visibility, right? So it's very important. Yeah, your boss's cousin, exactly. Buzzin. <laughs> buzzin is what we're calling it. Your buzzin or, or something. Your boss's boss's cousin, I think. But anyway, so skip levels are important. I think it's important to get visibility throughout your org. <laughs> what is that? What is that noise? Sorry, it's on my background. Oh, ben, you're very musical today. Beans are the musical fruit, I suppose. <laughs> I was like, it sounded like some bedtime no children's story. I was like, what is that? Anyways, so yeah, I'm going to end my rant, but I'm just saying it's important to get outside your bubble if you're an individual contributor. It's important for managers especially to get outside their bubble and to make sure that they have a relationship with folks on the executive team or whatever level is above them, because ultimately it's about having communication channels throughout an organization. Because ultimately, if you think about a manager's job, like it's really communication more mm -hmm. than anything. And when you're super high up at the top levels of executive teams, what happens is people don't tell them the truth anymore because everybody's afraid they're going to get fired. And so the biggest thing is like, how do we get insight into what's actually going on? How do we get insight into the actual processes that are close to the metal? Because you get really far removed with every level you go up. I mean, that is effort that you need to put towards communication to find out what's actually going on because silos are real. And that's the trade-off with levels, you know? You just have siloing. And so you drop packets between the different levels. So yeah, it's kind of an interesting contrast to the last episode we recorded, which is about open source. 
person is there, the higher you get, the more honest people get, or like the more you hear about what they're unhappy about. Although I don't know if that's the case for like stuff that deals with open source, but is a company like NPM. But this holacracy thing kind of reminds me of that popular business anecdote about some gaming studio where there's no hierarchy and no structure and no plan. And to Ari's point, it seems like it's successful only in that it apparently caters to like a very small subset of the population. And I as well, I'm not sure how confident I am in this idea that we don't have hierarchy because from what I've seen, it seems more like people like this idea of we're all equal and everybody has a say, but the way it plays out is there still is a hierarchy. It's just now it's not written down. Mm -hmm. So it's less accessible to people. And also there's less safety and accountability there. Yeah, the checks and balance are critical. What's compelling about Holacracy, I think, is when you take it in the context of gigantic global organizations like the U.S. Army or something or major corporations where there's 20 levels between the CEO and people on the ground. There's a lot of problems that come from the game of telephone as signals go through those levels organization, right? I think I totally agree with you guys. The concern is like if there is no specific structure or there's too little structure, then there becomes a bootleg structure that hides potentially nasty stuff. But I think what Holacracy might have failed when it fails because it goes too far in ripping down structure. But I think it's about seeing the strengths of hierarchies, but also their weaknesses. So having the right parts, paying the cost of the right parts, but then making sure you never have more levels than you actually need. That would be my idealistic communist defense. It works in theory, don't you understand? Holacracy will save us. And so to Ari's question earlier, in my experience, when it comes to startups that both, so I've worked at both an R&D division where there was no customer fit. So we had like mm. no market all the way up to smaller startups that are like actively like figuring out their market fit and growing. And so this has been brought up a couple of times, but that transition for founders to go from like the person who created 90% of the code base to becoming the chief executive officer is something that I've noticed that founders often have trouble transitioning between mm. because, you know, it is something you've basically like poured your heart and soul into. And so they want either like oversight over every single PR or whatnot. And I've seen different levels of this. And so I think as far as how that reflects on what we can take away, I think as developers is when we're looking at our own career paths, being intentional about where it is we want to be. Is your goal like to be a chief technical officer or are you actually much happier just being able to own a part of the code and just hammer away, right? We've seen founders, they choose to not go the chief executive officer route and they just stay as an individual contributor and let someone else handle those big stakeholder meetings and those things. And I think when it comes to us and our own careers, it's important not to just take manager positions for the sake of advancing because as we've talked about and Mel and David has said more companies are starting to recognize that the engineering path needs to diverge. And so I think it's important to look for companies that can support that if you don't have that at your company and knowing that. And so to David's point, right, we can always have the mentality of wanting to lift your team and helping your team be better. But that doesn't mean you have to be a manager. You can still do that as a contributor. And so those are my two cents on that. And that's all for this episode. Tune in next week as we talk about managers' roles in retention and career growth within a company. Thanks for listening, and until next week, enjoy the view.